You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. We have a great podcast lined up for you today in which we'll be trying to answer the question, who's driving the security architecture bus? Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask my guests, Shanisa Camper and Aparna Murthy, to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Shanisa? Hello, Shanisa Cambrick. Um, I've been in the IT industry for over 18 years. I'm currently a principal program manager with Microsoft, and I'm into all things security architecture. Hello, this is Aparna Murthy, and I've been a risk and compliance person across business and IT for about 15 plus years now. I've done various, I've been an external auditor. I'm a CPA by profession. I've done internal audits, external audits, and also been a compliance profession. Uh, at this time, I am being a consultant at large and happy to enjoy joining this podcast today. And we are certainly happy to have you both here. Shanisa, I want to start by asking you about migrating to the cloud and some of the misconceptions around security that exist. Can you talk a little bit about the complex realities of security in the cloud? You know, when I hear that question, it makes me think back to a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, when I was at a conference, um, and they grouped everybody into roundtables, and one of the questions was, what is your concern when migrating to the cloud? And I was actually surrounded by a bunch of VPs and CISOs, and all of their concerns were related to, you know, how quickly, what's the cost. And then when it came to me, I mentioned identity and access management, and everybody just had like a bit of a blank stare. And their thought was that, you know, the cloud provider is responsible for identity and access. And I realized there's a big gap in understanding of the uh, cloud responsibility, the shared responsibility model. And the cloud provider does, you know, oversee the infrastructure to some degree, and they provide some out-of-the-box roles. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for how those roles get assigned to users and who has access to what within your environment. The other concern is making sure that users don't try to do a lift and shift. You really need to try to do a holistic assessment of what's the new functionality that you plan to take advantage of within the cloud. What's your whole reason for migrating? So if it's to do like-for-like, then from a cost perspective, that probably doesn't make sense. But if you want to take advantage of new functionality, then you need to realize that there's going to be new problems that you need to address, new controls that you'll need to put in place. And you'll need to assess things like how is your operations going to work? Um, How does incident response and forensics work? When it comes to things like, you know, maybe machine learning and, and big data, what are your controls going to be around that? And then one of the analogies that I like to use is uh, you're moving from one house to another. And in that new house, you may be taking some of your old furniture, but it's probably not going to sit in the exact same place. You may have alarms in your old house that you need to reconfigure within the new house. You don't just take those from one spot and move them to another one. Um, So, again, they need to look at from a responsibility model and then also the assessment of what's going to change when you move to the cloud. I love that visual analogy because you can really see things not fitting in that new place. 
Um, Aparna, I wanted to just kind of follow up on one thing that Shanisa had mentioned about the shared responsibility model. And I was hoping you could talk to our listeners a little bit about security architecture drivers and who should be the people making those decisions and what are those things that they should be thinking about? Perfect. Yes. Um, you know, Casey, I'm just going to pivot that to saying that these are not necessarily drivers, but rather considerations that, you know, the risk professional in me is trying to say, it's more considerations. What should you think? Like like she mentioned, when you move homes, I should be thinking about where my furniture would fit, right? So let me talk to you about a little bit about that to the audience, to you. Um, one would be, like you rightly alluded, who should be at the table. But to me, it starts with that, the journey of security architecture starts with that. Who are the decision makers? I would love to for it to be a subcommittee of the board, and I would think good representation at that level is important. You should definitely have your CIO, your CISO, the chief risk officer, uh, ideally the CEO and the CSO, if possible, or representatives of them. And the reason you might wonder and ask why at that level, I'm going to go back to Shanice's example of, of moving homes. Now, they are the ones who know what is in the works and what, are we going to move in the future? Is it our business direction to move in the future? Are we going to expand our business to do something more than what we are at this time? What are my business focus? What are my business drivers? What are my business priorities? And what kind of security priorities then should I choose based on those business priorities? Um, what kind of risk am I okay with as leadership, as the leaders who are at the, at the helm guiding the company or the organization and taking them through this? What is important for their business success? So who better than them to know that? And that drives conversation around what's an acceptable risk to the organization. There's always questions around regulatory requirements, too, that needs to be considered. But to me, they are the ones who set the tone, and the follow-through from there would be, you know, a security and architecture framework that then takes that into consideration, the risk appetite into consideration. They can create policy procedures in line with that vision and that priorities. And the second consideration for me would be to say, Make sure to have a good framework, a policy, or a procedure document, all of these. I call it, you know, it's like a package, a well-nice package which lays out your marching order, so to speak. How is this team of us going to orchestrate this security architecture and make sure it comes out seamlessly? It should consider your risk appetite. It should be reviewed periodically. Who are my right stakeholders who have some vested interest in this? Um, does it have a good buy-in? So the framework should have a good buy-in from, from people who you're expecting to execute against. And that dovetails to communication. Great, I made a wonderful paper document which talks about the vision, which talks about the framework that's needed, but am I communicating? Am I driving discussions around it? Am I seeking inputs from my users on that framework? Is it working for them? Is it not working for them? You know, it's wonderful that we have this lauded out framework, but guess what? It's hard for me to execute against it. Um, it's really not practicable. It's too cost intensive. You know, are we really trying to do that? that? That kind of communication is also essential so that people understand what is needed to be done 
and also the two-way communication being open to get feedback from them. And is your compliance and your risk department then looking and monitoring and reviewing all of this? Are you truly executing against the framework the appropriate way? Are there exceptions to it? All of these, I cannot stress enough how important it is, especially if you're a regulator. They do look into it. They do understand that there is a deliberate thought process that this company or this organization has put into it. Even an auditor, for that matter of fact, you know, you, you might not be a regulated company, but an auditor might be a person second next to that. They do look into this, and then they say, okay, there's been a good thought process around this, and you guys have thought about it. Leave aside auditors, leave aside regulators. You might have stockholders who would love to know that what's your thought process on this. So the other consideration I would say management should think about is how transparent do you want to be about your security architecture? Do you want to discuss and talk about it in your financial statement reporting. There are plenty of companies who allude to that. Do you want to talk about your risk appetite in that and then want to expand further on that? It builds trust. When you're transparent, we're in the business of trust. I think security architecture and risk management all are in the business of creating trust. And trust in communication, transparency leads itself to trust. Um, the last thing I would like to end with is to say risk culture. Risk culture and risk cannot be an afterthought. It needs to be lockstep in everything that the management does. It has to be deliberate. It has to be something that we discuss and debate. It has to be almost like the organization's bees knees, <laughs> if I were to say. It's something that needs to come natural. So it can become something natural if it's driven deliberately. So these are what I would think as considerations. That's a, a lot to unpack there. I want to go back to you mentioned frameworks and compliance. And, Shanisa, I'm hoping you can maybe delve into that aspect a little bit more. Just looking at where do compliance and privacy fall into that overall security architecture are these the drivers for making decisions? To what degree should they be? And if compliance and privacy are indeed the drivers, how do you then ensure that security risks are assessed and addressed as new technology is developed, like AI, blockchain, crypto, and so forth? Yeah, so I think to what Aparna alluded to, um, that collaboration between different functions is really important. But compliance and privacy really shouldn't be the drivers of security architecture, but they should definitely inform what we protect, um, you know, what are the risks that we see and how we treat that risk. Um, there should be, I guess I would call it a bit of a tiger team between your security, compliance, privacy, risk, and legal teams. You know, there's so much that's changing within the compliance and privacy regulations, and they vary from state to state, from country to country. Um, you know, and if you're trying to chase that, I, I think you're you're fighting a losing battle. However, if you go back to, you know, risk as your standpoint and assessing it from that perspective of I'm trying to address the risk for the company. So what is the business risk? What is the IT risk? What are the exceptions and what are we w willing to live with? Um, I think is more important. Um, and that will get you to a better security posture than trying to, you know, chase regulation. So you mentioned compliance and privacy frameworks, but what are some of the established frameworks that companies should be leveraging as a baseline for good security posture? 
Yeah. So there's really, you know, a bunch out there. And, you know, when you're looking at these things, you really should look at general frameworks and then also some guidance that's really specific to your industry, your organization, and the way that you want to operate. Um, so I'm thinking of things like NIST and ISO and COVID um, and the CIS controls and the CSA cloud controls matrix. And all of those should inform in helping you build out your company's particular baseline you're probably going to end up with a, a mix of different things from frameworks. Um, you know, I think it's going to be really hard that you stick with just one. Um, just because technology is changing so fast, baselines and frameworks don't address all of these different things yet, and it takes time to build those into those frameworks. So, you know, again, going back to risk as the way that you live, addressing that, building that into your process um, will take you much further than living and dying by a framework. So, Aparna, can you talk to our listeners about how to ensure that the knowledge to execute against the chosen methodology is well communicated and understood and evaluated? Perfect. I I love the word choice that you made of saying communicated versus training because most often, you know, when you say the word training, that's what most people use to say, well, how do I communicate this to everybody? Well, let's train them. So it's used interchangeably. But I think, and then the word training spawns off this compulsory training, which is pushed down to people, and everybody groans and moans saying, oh, my God, I need to finish so many of them before said deadline. And and I feel in that process it's lost as to what, what we're trying to really communicate over there. I want to go back to my music analogy and then say this, like, the sheet music is there have we practiced enough against it? We have an orchestra performance coming up. We need to work as a team in security architecture because it takes everybody to make it work. And have we all practiced enough? You know, you train hard and fight easy is a common term. I like to twist it a little bit and say we train hard and we deliver easy. So it's broad. I would start with, yes, traditional training which is almost like a classroom training um, or where you want to talk about it, let them know what the new policy or the framework is or what the chosen methodology is, and then online training. The beauty of that is that it's documentable, provable. If you ever get audited or if you ever get a regulator walking in, some of these regulations do look for these kind of mandatory trainings that are there. So, that checks the box perfectly in there. It does serve a purpose. I would love to see where there's cross-department meetings where the security team, I still remember my initial days of interaction with Janisa and her team, they would come to our team meetings and then have knowledge sessions with us. And they would talk to us about what are the considerations from their perspective that we need to be looking at. I was an audit and then later in compliance and she was in IT security. And it, it was lovely to have that, you know, knowledge coming firsthand from the teams. So I think a cross-department collaboration, if it's possible, if it's doable, should be really encouraged. And I think it goes a long way in building trust and building collaborative environments. And also, it's not the IT security team to make sure how architecture is taken care of. It's everybody's business. It helps drive that. And I also think there is a manager-led conversation. Most managers have team meetings. Have you set team goals of learning 
of what's the new policies that have come out. Let's discuss that, team. Do you guys have any thoughts around it? Has anybody reviewed it in the team? Somebody could take the lead, review it, make sure it's socialized. This could be done by every single manager as part of his day-to-day, you know, weekly meetings with this team. There's one common thing I've seen, which is quite effective, is a security week. Um, most companies seem to go this way. They have a security week where they have open training, come and talk to us, conversation, and then they communicate in that. They share cases, which has happened, and they also share new technology and how it influences what people should be considering. Um, it's lovely to have that. My only two cents to add to that would be to say, Let's make it a routine to have it, not just somebody has this great idea to have a security week and then the next year we don't land up doing it. Or if you could do it more frequently. We all have memories which are short-term and with social media and the right <laughs> and the age in which we live in, our memory and our attention span is only so much. And we do sprints. You know, can we take the agile method in that and then try to do it as security week every quarter once? Um, I'm a big fan of micro-learning Micro-learning is nothing but just two-minute learning, something that you can push down to people. And I don't need to admit more than two minutes of a day. I just need to read a small blurb of what's important for my team in this day and age of what projects I'm handling. That's great. It hits home, gets their attention, not too much of time investment. At the same time, you get to communicate what you want to do. Another way I've seen things work is, Communication by cross-training, where somebody else, like a guest role, um, invite people in your security organization or your, you know, get them to come and join your team just for a week. Shadow what we do in our organization. Come and learn. Come and, come and talk to us about what you want to see from us. It goes back to the point which I said, it's developing that trust, that collaboration, which pays dividends in multifold. It's almost like it drives that ability of the person to take security seriously, understand where to reach out to, see where, where information lies. All of this gets achieved if you can do that. Um, the last one I would say is take the help of your risk team. Ask them to review yours for effectiveness. Find root causes of failures. You know, this should be discussed at the appropriate forums too, and that was Communication doesn't have to be just about the framework. It's also communication around, did the framework do the job? You know, is things working according to the framework? Is the framework broken? Is that why it's not working? Or it's a good framework, there's something lapsed in that. Somebody needs to step back and look at it. So that's also part of communication accordingly. And so can you expand just a little bit because you did touch on, um, you know, incorporating the risk team into this. Can you explain for our listeners where risk management fits into this overall governance process? The role of risk management is essential at every single level. Going back to our first question where we talked about consideration, they need to have a seat at the table, even at those discussions where management is meeting to decide on the vision. So that's why I included the chief risk officer uh, in there. Who better knows about risk tolerance and what is an acceptable risk for the organization than a chief risk officer? Um, so it starts from there to use and leverage your risk teams, be it your first line of defense, your second or your third line, 
again, when I say the first and the second and the third, not all organizations, small business, medium-sized business, and large, not all of them might have it exactly beautifully defined um, as the first line and the second line and the third line. They might be blurred lines, but basically harness their help, you know, get them to monitor, get them to review effectiveness, trend your effectiveness, consult with them on the root causes of certain things breaking, and also, you know, track exceptions. You know, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be something that doesn't actually fit the mold, which we are asking people to follow. And who better than them to monitor that and say, oh, well, your exception was granted in these circumstances, but have you now rethought that this exception might have changed? The circumstances based on which we gave you that exception is no longer existing. Or if this is going to be a continuous one, should we be revising something? So drive a culture of routines. They can help you drive a culture of routines where it's discussed at the appropriate levels, all these things, various topics, the monitoring of the results, the framework, the methodology, what actions were taken. They could even help you in testing, like a mock audit, you know, or a mock drill. Um, the term I referred to before, practice hard and fight easy, it's, it's, it's going to be useful. So leverage them for that. Be regulator ready. So you're ready when the regulators walk in to test or the auditor walks in to test. They can help you drive consistency in your approach. Um, and also for exception monitoring. I cannot stress enough how important exception monitoring is and issues monitoring. What are the issues that we are seeing in this? You know, So to Shanice's point and your point in AI, okay, great. Your framework did touch on AI. Your methodology does touch on AI. But have you thought about this aspect of AI where machine learning, let me take an example of machine learning. Machine learning is teacher-driven, right? You teach the machine to learn something. Can an intruder then teach that machine learning to learn how to disclose information which it should not be disclosing? Can it be taught? I'm only hypothesizing, hypothesizing here, but all I'm trying to say is let them be that devil's advocate. Let the risk partner be the devil's advocate and quiz you. See what potential issues are there. Find out how severe it could be. It's not when it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's a matter of if it happens, what do we react? Are we prepared for it? Or is it something at risk we're okay to live with? You know, those are conscious, deliberate decisions which are being driven. And the risk partners can definitely help you do that. And they can highlight it at the right level of leadership. That, that way there is buy-in, there is thought process around it. And it gets documented, too. And it drives collaboration. So we've talked about, you know, who has a seat at the table, who's involved in this. And there are a lot, a lot of people involved in that, right? And, you know, you mentioned exceptions. And I think perhaps one of the elephants in the room with exceptions is skill sets. So, Shanice, I was hoping you could maybe talk about, you know, understanding that maybe all of those representations that an organization needs to be part of the decision-making, they may not necessarily have those skilled people within their team. So how do the skill sets of your team impact your chosen architecture methodology? Yeah, so I think, you know, the skill sets definitely impact from a support standpoint. 
they shouldn't drive your methodology, but they should inform the risk that you're taking on with that methodology. So I've seen plenty of projects where there's a chosen architecture. Um, there's a lot of money that's spent to put that architecture in place. And then at the end of the day, you don't have the people with the knowledge to support it or even the bandwidth to support those activities. And so your security posture is no better than when you first started that project. So that really does need to be factored as a risk um, to your company is, you know, who's going to be supporting this at the end of the day? And do they understand how to support it? Um, do they have the tools and knowledge in place um, to do that? And, you know, when you're looking at those skill sets and the lack of skill sets, you know, treating it like a risk to say, you know, we're going to accept this risk. We're just going to live with the fact that people don't know how to use these tools or keep this architecture going or we're going to remediate this risk, and so we want to train our people, or we want to bring in additional people to help support this, um, or possibly looking at transferring that. So, so maybe you want to bring in a third-party consulting company who's going to handle your security going forward. Um, or there could be ways of mitigating that. But, you know, again, at the end of this, if you want to spend all of this money to put in a good security architecture and good security controls, making sure that you have the people to support it is really important. Absolutely. Shanisa and Arpana, I would love if you could explain for our listeners the way that security architecture needs to address things like ransomware, which <laughs> just seems to be consuming the headlines these days, and third and fourth party supply chain risks. Shanisa, let's start with you. Yeah, so the way I would approach this is um, from a pretty high level. So I wouldn't be prescriptive necessarily, um, but looking at defense in depth. And so for me, there's three main pillars and then four question areas that I like to ask around this. The three main pillars being protection, detection, and remediation. And then the four question areas that I like to dive into is what needs to be protected, detected, or remediated. And then, um, you know, asking why. So why would that fail? So what are the gaps there with your protection, detection, remediation? Um, and then why would it work? So why are we choosing this methodology? And then understanding why is it important to protect whatever asset it is that we're looking at. The next question I like to ask is who. So who's going to be performing those three pillars of protection, detection, and remediation? And then understanding your threats and your attackers. What do they look like? What are the methods they like to use? Um, because that should be informing those three pillars as you put those in place. And then the last question I like to ask is how. So understanding how do these three items impact your business, um, how do they address the risk, and how will they be implemented? And going back, you know, to our skill set question, that really should be a part of that. Like when you answer that question, um, knowing do I have the skill set to support this? You know, and a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, focus on the security basics. But to be honest, the basics and being simple, uh, especially now, can be really, really hard. Um, there's a moving target when it comes to technology. So, you know, we've touched on AI, and you have things like deep fakes, and you have virtual reality. And for a lot of these, there's no baseline. There's no foundation that somebody else has put in place to say, this is how you protect against this. Um, you know, so security professionals have a moving target that we're trying to chase down. Um, so really, you know, looking at it from a risk standpoint of doing continuous assessment of what are my critical assets, where are there gaps in protection, detection, and remediation? And then following the flow of my information and my data to make sure I have coverage there. You know, we're really big on saying it's not if an attack is going to happen, it's when. 
And so, of course, what do you have protecting you? What do you have detecting that that's happened? And what do you have to remediate to put yourself back to a good state? I'm going to add more on the third and the fourth party risk per se. You know, as we've evolved in the third party management, I think most organizations have come to recognize it, drive conversation, have policies, procedures around it. Um, the newer aspect to it is the fourth party. And don't get me wrong, that third party is still a big portion of what needs to be managed and, and, and what we need to manage, which is important. And I can tell you COVID has highlighted that more than anything else. Um, cognizant, if everybody can, you know, you can recall what happened in the turn of work from home, which happened last March, February, March period. Cognizant got hit by the ransomware. And they were third parties, significant third parties to many organizations around the world. They do business in 88 countries in about, and they are significant partners to more than 40 Fortune 500 companies. And it caused a lot of issues. So third party management is still a big thing. Uh, we need to go beyond security beyond the regular business continuity, and take a holistic approach on third parties overall. But it also is a moment for us to recognize that each of these third parties have a third party that they deal with. And in the recent past, all the SSA reports and the SOC reports do publish and require them to state who are their significant third parties. So who's driving that conversation in your organization, looking at that report and asking your third party, what are your practices around vendor management? What are your approaches to that? How are you going to make sure that if something were to happen to your third party, which is our fourth party, how are you going to deal with that? So are we looking at the fourth parties as an organization, asking ourselves, what do they provide to the third party? And have we risk them in criticality? Have we come up with a backup plan if needed? And what is your third party's risk management strategy overall? Have we had conversations around that? Have we done some reviews around that? Have we started monitoring these fourth parties on a daily basis? I can tell you there might be an existing third party, and there might be a third party who's in the pipeline, and a fourth-party alert might come to you. A third-party alert might come your way, and you might think, oh, this doesn't apply to my organization, but guess what? He's not in my database. But did we stop and think if there's somebody in the pipeline that we are negotiating with who might actually be using that third-party as their third-parties? You know, I know I'm using third-parties too much. <laughs> it, it, it's all about us knowing who we're dealing with, as the first line, which is our third party, and as the fourth party, who do our third parties use? Knowing Absolutely. that is All the important. way down the line, yeah. The whole supply chain, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not just mm-hmm. the third and fourth, right? Yeah, all the way down, and yep. the ones that are coming in as well. Um, so before yep. we wrap up, I have one final question. Um, what are some considerations for global companies that might be very different from, um, you know, SMB regional local businesses? And how do these different sized organizations navigate the considerations that you've both brought to light today? Arpana, why don't we start with you? 
that's a good question. You know, size matters a lot. If you're a global company, the very topic that we both talked about right now, just a few minutes ago, the fourth party becomes very, very critical to me. That is one thing that stands out. Use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And for that matter of fact, even bots. Bots have now been exploited, have had intrusions, which have happened, and these are more to come. You know, in the beginning days of crypto, if you remember, there was, there was a lot of news on how it can be broken into and all that stuff. AI and machine learning still haven't reached that level of maturity of what needs to be done to safeguard them and how can we go about doing it. To me, as a global company, you are harnessing AI. You are harnessing machine learning. A, what is the transparency you're giving your stakeholders around that? B, what are the measures you're taking around that? And can you all band together and come up with a framework which would help everybody else who might not be as big as you or as with a global presence as you are to do that? And there's always, I know it's being a dead horse when I say regulatory, there's multiple plethora of regulatory requirements that come up with every single country having their own requirements. Now, GDPR started it off, and we have California. We have so many other things that, that get spawned. So there's always a challenge for a global company saying, what's my lowest common denominator? Where do I go? What do I start baselining to? And am I then going to be compliant with every law in every part of the globe? Or do I have to take a risk-based approach in that? I think those are conscious discussions that need to be driven, and we need to take a risk-based approach in those and document that. And that way, it's there in writing what's your approach and what was the thought process and who helped you make those conclusions or those, those conversations, you know, and who participated in that. I think, to me, those are the key ones I can think about right now is that AI, regulatory, and third and fourth parties, which is more impactful for the global companies. And Tanisa, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Prana touched on it, that for global companies, there's a lot of complexity. And in my mind, when there's that much complexity, it makes it that much more important that different functions within the business partner together. So there should definitely be collaboration between your security, audit, legal, privacy, and compliance. Um, and that's really worked well for me in the past so that we're covering our, our bases when we're looking at, um, you know, what's impacting the company and making sure that we don't have a strategy of, you know, us versus them, but really a strategy of partnering together. And then for small, um, you know, medium-sized businesses, I really think the focus needs to be on prioritizing risk and those three pillars that I talked about of protecting, detecting, and remediating. Um, and so that's going to inform their security architecture and I think take them a really long way in guiding their business to a really good security posture. Chumita Arpana, thank you so much for being with us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. This has really been a very enlightening and helpful conversation. A reminder that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. You can learn more by visiting us at rsaconference.com forward slash become a contributor. Thank you all so much.